We're in a series on the book of John. Right now, we're starting off in John chapter 6. We're going to look at John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. And I want to read that for you. And uh, kind of then we'll, we'll, we'll dive into this passage. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him and said, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they all had enough to eat, he said to the disciples, gather the pieces that are left over and let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with pieces of five barley loaves left over from those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus had performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So we're in the book of John. We've been, we've been seeing along the first, the first five chapters how Jesus is laying this groundwork to, 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 make, to fortify, uh, to prove his claim. I'm not sure how to express that. His claim that he's the Messiah, but also his claim that causes, causes a lot more problems is his claim that he's the son of God his claim along the way that he was the mover of creation, his claim, he's, all these claims keep adding up, and he's giving these, the Bible calls them signs. What, what is that? That's, that's identifiers of something that's important for someone to see. You know, when you're driving down the highway, now we have GPS, so you don't even need to think while you drive, but when you're driving down the highway, and let's just say your GPS goes out for a minute, and you know I'm looking for this exit, suddenly every exit sign becomes important because you're looking for that exit. And so understanding what the signs say is very key. And what's very key then, too, is what are you looking for? Jesus is giving signs, but we've already seen, we see in this passage and we've already seen earlier, some of them are not looking for what he's showing them. They want something different, and we're going to get into that. And so I think about this because, you know, sometimes in our lives, really huge things can happen, but mostly in our lives... Our lives are a long series of seemingly insignificant actions and decisions, right? You, do you ever come home, for those of you that are married or maybe some, some of you parents with somebody that care, you know, what, what, what happened at work today? Oh, this is just a normal, normal work day. Now, you think about what you just said. You've just dismissed eight hours of your life as insignificant. Eh, it's just a regular day. Eight hours of your life that's insignificant. And God says, and we, we saw this earlier, it is not insignificant. Those eight hours of your life are incredibly significant because even the smallest of things become huge when God gets a hold of them. So today we're going to see some small things that are actually to God very big things when he's involved. We're going to see that our powerlessness translate into powerful things when Jesus is involved. Think about how hopeful and assuring that is. Think about that. Even the small instances of your life, the little, sometimes even little chit-chat in, in an office break room, things that you don't even think are that important. God says, I can use it. I can use it. You know, I share with you guys a lot of times the, my, the times I blow it in my life. So every once in a while, I think I need to share, share a time when things go right in my life, that I actually do the right thing. And, and, and I've mentioned this before, but years and years ago, I, uh, I, was in, I led a youth group, and one of the things we did was, was like a sports ministry, and one of the things was karate. And I, I was taking karate and, and, and then teaching it to teenagers also. And the place where I took karate... It was basically a small class with three other people, and they learned out, they learned, found out pretty quick that I was a youth pastor working with teens, and that, you know, that I believed in God and I, you know, Jesus and everything that comes along with it. And so I was the butt of a lot of jokes and 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 mockery, and it was usually good natured, 
Only occasionally did it get a little bitter and like they're really trying to hurt me. But most of the time it was just good natured. You know, we would be sitting there. Maybe at one point we were we were breaking some boards and then working on breaking some some blocks, cinder blocks. And 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 they were like, "Oh, is it okay for a God person to hit so hard?" I don't know. You know, I'm just like, uh, next time we spar, I'm going to kill you. You know, uh, that's what I think. And so it just went on for, for three and a half, four years, four years of just being with these guys, we, kind of friends, but uh, a lot of good-natured ribbing and a lot of uh, making fun. And then uh, about 10 years ago, I got a call just out of the blue, and this guy says, hey, Bob, and he, he just said, this, this, this is John from Karate. Do you remember me? This, that was 20 years ago. And I said, dude, yes, I do remember you. He goes, I remember too. I remember how we made fun of you. I said, I, I remember that too, yeah. Yeah, haven't quite forgiven you for that. Uh, and he said, you know, we were watching you the whole time. And I said, oh, crap, I'm in trouble now because now, now they're going to bring up the time. He goes, I've become a Christian and, and he said, it was a lot of things, but you were a part of it. And he goes, I've started a church, and I'm the pastor. Can I talk to you? And I was like, yes. He goes, remember Randy? And I said, yeah. He goes, he's a Christian too. He goes, he works this shipyard, but he has a ministry there, and he tells people about Jesus. And he goes, we were watching you. Now, some of those times, my wife would say, how did karate go today? Us. Fine. Typical day. Learned a few new things. Worked on a lot of things. Did this, did that. Sparred a little bit. Did this. Regular day. But it wasn't. It was a powerful day, and I didn't even know it. Because God says even the little things even the little things. So today we're going to look at that. This is a longer introduction than I planned on having, but we're going to look at that. And before we do, because this is, I, I would feel like things weren't complete if we didn't, we're going to go on a short rabbit trail, all right? Just a short rabbit trail, because this passage is a, is a very important passage for a certain thing. And this is this. In, in, in scholarly circles now, and, and it's, it's waning some because there's been so much proof that has come out about the Bible. But what is, what is fashionable to say about the Bible among people who don't believe in the Bible is to say that, that um, it's a whole bunch of stories that were kind of told verbally for 100, 150 years. And finally, all these church people said, we got to get these stories together and we'll make them into four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we'll use those four books to, to kind of codify this religion and, and, and make it work. And so what it is, is it's just a bunch of stories that, that got kind of blown up and made up for, for over 100 years that then just kind of got pulled into books, okay? So that's what, that's what people, um, there's a couple of guys, a guy at University of North Carolina who's big on this. He, he propagates it a lot. There's a couple others. And that's, what they, that's why they say the Bible, the four books of the gospel are not, are not something you can trust in because they're not historically accurate. That's the big thing. They're not historically accurate. So what do historians do when they look at a text and they want to decide if it's historically accurate? Well, they look at a whole bunch of things. We've talked about this a little bit. Names, geography. How do they use names? How do they use geography? How do, do they know what the money, how the money works? Do they know how the culture works? Do they know how religion works? Do the writers know all of these things, right? And what we have is we found through a lot of discoveries that have made in the last 40, 30, 40 years, is that the, the New Testament, the four books of the Bible, are incredibly accurate. They're accurate to a degree that's astounding. And we're looking at a passage that is one of the passages that reinforce that. So I want you to see this, and I just want to say this kind of quick. The feeding of the 5,000 is in all four Gospels. Now, let's remember, nobody disagrees on this. The four Gospels were written thousands oftentimes of miles apart at different times. There's no way, there's absolutely no way in ancient times that the four writers could have coordinated anything. They're too far removed. Um, the distance is too great in a, in a, in a time when, when uh, travel, you know, obviously no internet, nothing like that, all right? So the four gospels uh, all mention this, this, this story, the feeding of the 5,000. In Mark 6, and I'm just going to run through this fast. 
in Mark 6, it says that there's a whole lot of people coming and going. The area right now is very busy. A lot of people are traveling. But Mark doesn't tell us why a lot of people are traveling. But John does. In this passage, John says it's the Passover time. We know historically when it's the Passover, tens, sometimes hundreds of thousands of people are moving towards Jerusalem especially. There's all these people going around. There's a lot of traveling going on. And so this explains the, uh, the traveling. So here's, here's what we see. Suddenly, a passage in Mark is explained by a passage in John with two people who could not have coordinated this. And so this keeps, and, and it just keeps going. In John 6, 4, it says it's Passover. In John 6, 5, Jesus asks Philip where to buy bread. They're in the middle of nowhere, and Jesus turns to Philip and says, where can we get bread? Philip, where's the closest food lion? That's what he's saying. Well, why would, why would Jesus ask Philip? Why Philip? Well, we see that in Luke 9.10, in Luke, a totally different book, the feeding is near the town of Bethsaida. In John 1, a totally different part of John, different from Luke, we, know, we find out that Philip is from Bethsaida. So it is natural for Jesus to say to Philip, where can we get bread? Philip's the local guy. He knows where 7-Eleven is, right? He knows where the Wawa is. He knows where they can get as much stuff as possible. Why does Andrew pitch in? John doesn't tell us. But earlier in John, he tells us that Andrew also is from that area. He's also a local. So the two locals speak up when Jesus says we're looking for bread. The guys who don't live near there go, we don't know. We don't know where we could buy bread. So you think about it. If I just read through this, we read through this passage, some of these things, he mentions the Passover. It's, it has no significance necessarily, but it informs us of the greater story. It doesn't change the meaning of this. What it does is it deepens it for us. It helps us understand. Jesus says, where's the, where, hey, hey, local guy, where we get something to eat? In John 6, 9, it just mentions, John just mentions, the little boy has barley loaves. Barley loaves. Well, what is that? Anything special to that? Not that we know of, except for one thing. Because it's the Passover, we know what time of year it is. And since we know what time of year it is, we know what the latest harvest was. You want to guess what the latest harvest they just had was? Barley. Barley. So you see what's happening here? We have accuracy upon accuracy being piled up from different sources, and they mesh and they all separately don't mean much to us. But when you pull them all together, they mesh. In Mark 6, it says that there was a lot of green grass growing right there. Now, why is this? Well, because they're in a desert place. So green grass is an unusual thing. In John 6.10, it says there was much grass he describes that too, although just different. He says there's much grass here, which is unusual because they're in a desert place. Why, why that detail? Why is there grass? And why is it so green in the desert? Well, interestingly, and we'll see, show you a map here, just, just a little ways away is a city called Tiberias. It's a Roman city. And when the Romans came through and just destroyed the Middle East, around A.D. 70, they left two places, this is, or three places. This is one of them, the city of Tiberias, because it was a Roman city. And in Tiberias, one of the key things they did for the Roman government was keep track of rainfall and keep track of harvests. Now, they keep track of rainfall. What does that show us? Well, when we look, they had for a number of years, about an eight-year span of extensive rain around the time of the Passover in the desert. So grass grew. Unusually large amounts of grass grew in the desert right at the time that John is describing. Now, what does this show us? You know, when you think about this, what does this show us? 
It shows us this. It shows us that the four gospel writers were not people who, who just were, were uh, putting together stories. They were there. Who would know for a six to seven year span there was extensive grass in a part of the desert in the middle of nowhere? Who would know that? Only someone who had been there. So now we know they're eyewitnesses. And they get, and think about this, they get the minute details right. The minute details they get exactly. Now, what makes us think that if they get the minute details right, they can't get the big ones right? I've read a lot studying this passage. There's a number of people that say, okay, they were mistaken. What happened was, and they found that they had this food available that they didn't know about, or maybe maybe because the little boy shared his food, everybody decided to be generous and share their food. They go to great lengths to explain why that miracle didn't happen. And then they say other things, like one guy said, the idea of grass growing in the desert is ridiculous. And I'm like, hello, you've missed something because it's true. And so what, what, what are we saying here? If the gospel writers got the minor details right, it's logical to get them, for them to get the major details right. The major details, like what Jesus taught, the miracles, because we have texts that are proving themselves to be historically reliable. And that's very important for us as believers in Jesus Christ. Because why? Because we base everything on the text. We base it. The truthfulness of the text informs us. So then by faith, we take the step to trust that Jesus is the Messiah. So the truthfulness, the accuracy of the text, of the text is key. It's, a key. it's very key for us. All right, rabbit trail over. Here we go. Feeding of the 5,000. I got to hurry now. First thing, he says, Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore. Oh, we're going to see the setting. I didn't. He crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish festival, Passover festival was near. Another thing that's good for us to know about the Jewish Passover festival was near is that in, at the end of John 5, they're at a festival, and it most likely is the Passover festival. So the time difference between John 5 and John 6 is about a year, at least six months. The only other big festival they would mention, maybe uh, would, 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 there's another one that's six, eight months away. So we'll say eight months to a year difference. So there's a significant time gap here between 5 and 6. John just says sometime after this. That's his way of saying it's been a while. All right? So sometime after this, there's a time gap. It's shown to us because he says it's the feast of the Passover. Let me just give you a couple things that had happened between John 5 and John 6. Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. That happened between. He's done that by the time we get to where we're at. Jesus calmed the storm in the middle of the sea. It's happened. Sends the demons who went to herd of pigs. Already happened. Sends out the 12 disciples. That's already happened. Uh, King Herod kills John the Baptist. That's happened not that long ago. And he's done many healings. So we're setting, he's helping us see the, set the stage for this event. The disciples have returned from this ministry all over Galilee. Jesus has ministered nonstop to, to people. They're tired. He's tired. So it seems like what he wants to do is he wants to head to a deserted part of the country and just have some downtime with the disciples. Maybe, maybe debrief them about what they've been off doing and then explain to him some of the things he's been doing while they've been out and, and uh, uh, just spend some time kind of re, re, strengthening themselves. And so this is the setting that's going on. One other thing about the setting that's going on, let me just tell you, I'm swamping you with historical stuff, I know this. Three major groups that are, that are at work during this time, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, Essenes, and the Zealots. That didn't come up. There it is. Sadducees, Pharisees, Essenes, and the Zealots. Okay, those are the three major groups. You could say political groups, maybe not. That doesn't quite explain it. But you have the Sadducees. First of all, the Sadducees were Jews who didn't believe there was going to be a resurrection. They, they believed in God in a very general sort of way, but he wasn't a personal God. There was no personal relationship. That's why for the Sadducees, Jesus was the worst, because he was, he was contradicting everything they said. And so their natural outlook, you think about this. If you believe, if you believe there's a God out there somewhere, but you're not really sure about how this thing all works, and you're just not, so it's just kind of way out there. And you, and you don't think he's personal? And you don't think there's any afterlife? So what do you live for? 
You live for the here and the now. That's the only thing worth living for is the here and the now. Get what you get while you can, right? Make as much as you can. Enjoy life because once it ends, it ends. So when the Romans wanted to get some Jews who were compliant and would work with them, the Sadducees were the one. The Sadducees are the ones who run the temple because that's where all the money is. That's one big, but also because they'll do what the Romans tell them to do. So that's one of the big groups. Worked with the Romans, made lots of money, ran the temple, lived for today. There's nothing coming. Second big group, the Pharisees, along with the Essenes. The Essenes are people who lived out in the desert. They took the Pharisee to the way out extreme. But the Pharisees, they were the strict religious people. Obey the law. They were very moral. They were very righteous in that sense. They made a point of separating themselves from people who were unrighteous and condemning them. We say around here, everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, anything can happen when God's involved. The Pharisees would hate that. They would hate that. They would say, no, everyone is not welcome. No, it's not true that nobody's perfect. There's a few of us who have achieved this. We're as close as you can be to perfect. We're the righteous ones. And so they would separate from people they considered unrighteous, and they would condemn them. They were the elitists. They would say, we live right. We do God's will. And so God is going to, once he sees how good we are and we live right enough, he's going to come down and cleanse this land, all right? So they were very strict, moral, religious uh, people. Then you have the zealots. The zealots were the freedom fighters or the terrorists. It depends on which side you're on, right? One man's freedom fighter is another man's terrorist, right? So the zealots are the freedom fighters, the terrorists. They, they would say, look, this is the deal. You serve no one but God. You serve no one but God. So to them, paying taxes was a grave sin because you're serving someone else. You're allowing yourself to be. So they wouldn't pay taxes. They would recognize no king. And they believed violence was not just okay. Violence was ordained by God. It was their job to kill the unbelievers or even the Jews who weren't behaving correctly, weren't, who were paying taxes. They were strong. Their stronghold was in the Galilee. And their major stronghold was a small city called Gamla. But in the Galilee, and we know this from some writings from some Roman commanders, they would tell their troops, new troops, you never go out alone at night in the Galilee. You will find a knife in your back. You go in groups in the Galilee. You always watch your back in the Galilee because that's where the zealots are. Now, it's interesting. Jesus had a disciple named Matthew who was a tax collector. And Jesus had another disciple who was a zealot. Can you imagine those two? They're one of the 12. I can imagine going on trips, Jesus goes, uh, let's see, you're together, you're together. Yeah, yeah, Simon, you and Matthew, you're rooming together. <laughs> see how that works out, right? Neither one of them sleep the whole night. Mm -hmm. What are you doing? That kind of thing. And so this is very important for us to understand because this is what's going on there. Here's a map of this area so we can see where the red dot is. You can see Bethsaida there. That's where Bethsaida is. So if you go straight down to the seashore, that's about where Jesus is. Now, if you look to the right side of that map, do you see the G-A-M-L? That's Gamla. That is the hotbed of zealots in all of Israel, right there. Um, very famous. Oh, man, I just love history. When the Romans came to conquer, one of the cities they had the worst time with was Gamla because they fought. They said they fought like demons. And at the very end, the women and children threw themselves off a cliff rather than be slaves or servants to the Romans because it was what an unbeliever would do, would be a slave or a servant. The Romans were horrified. They have, we have one Roman commander, a guy who was like a lieutenant commander, and he said, what kind of people are these? So understand, this is, this is what's going on here. This is the setting. This is where Jesus is teaching, all right? So we have this, um, this setting we see in this passage the motivation of the crowd. A great crowd of people followed him because they saw 
the signs, the miracles. They were in it for the show. Bread and circus. They wanted to see the big bang. You know, today's 4th of July. I love fireworks. I love fireworks. I love the big bangs. I love the big explosions. I love that stuff. This is what they're saying. Yeah, it's like a rock con. Jesus, 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 Jesus. You know, and I'm going to talk for 45 minutes. No, miracles. We want miracles, right? They're, they're, they're there for the show in a sense. And this becomes more evident in the rest of the chapter as we'll continue this over a few weeks. They saw signs and they missed the point of the sign. I say this sometimes, we follow Jesus because he's God, not because he does us favors. That's not why we follow him. We follow him because he's God. And we believe in God because it's true, not because of what we get out of it. There's a huge difference there. There's a lot of people who believe because they get something out of it. There's a lot of people who think if they do things for God, he gives them favors. And they're missing the signs. So John here, he's showing something. He's teaching us something. Why is Jesus here? He's teaching us why are the crowds here? Now we're going to see, we see the setting. We're going to see the problem. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than a half year's wages to buy enough bread. See, Philip's an accountant, right? We need bread. 200 denarii. That's more than half a year's wages. That's what it'll take for everybody to have a snack. So he comes, I got that. I understand. So I'm right in the middle of it. Another disciple, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up and said, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far would that go among so many? Right? He's not looking at it as an accountant. He's saying, well, you know, we got something, but this something is nothing compared to the need. And so when we look at this book already in John, we've seen something. We've seen that Jesus is constantly getting in people's faces to let them see their inadequacies, to let them see how they cannot do what they want to do, to get them so that they see their inability in whatever situation. John the Baptist, he saw it immediately, right? He said, he must increase, I must decrease. John the Baptist said, I'm not even worthy of of latching his sandal, which is the job a slave, the lowest member around would do. And John says, I'm not even worthy of being the lowest person, the slave. He says, I understand who Jesus is. I understand where I am in this. Nicodemus, Jesus said to him, you're a religious leader of the whole nation? And you know what? There's a birth that even you need. You need the new birth. You're not excluded. The woman at the well, Jesus, remember he said, we can talk about religious stuff all day, but your life is totally messed up and I am what you need. The man at the pool, Jesus said to him, hey, let's face the facts. You're never getting in that pool because you can't. Now, do you really want to be healed? Because I know what you need. And now, Philip, where can we get food? Philip goes all accountant, calculates the cost. The answer is too much. We don't have it. Philip's just saying, there's no way, Jesus. There's no way these people are going to get a snack. Andrew says, well, you know, I found this little cast. Hey, kid, come here, come here. He's like, stranger danger, stranger danger. He's like, hey, okay, what you got in your bag there? What you got in your bag? <laughs> My lunch. Let me see, let me see. Give me that thing, you know. So, hey, we got this lunch, right? We got this, this lunch this little boy has. It's, it's, it's a lunchable. <laughs> as, soon as, I, I, as soon as I saw that, I said, oh, the little kid's got a lunchable. Five, five little loaves, two fish, comes with a plastic fork and knife. Little, little thing of tartar sauce that he can spread on it, you know, just like a Lunchable. So then I thought, well, let's look up Lunchable. And this came up, and I was like, well, that's great right there. That's great. And so I should get away from it. We'll all stay. Okay. It's important for us to understand. If you leave Jesus out of your calculations, you'll come up short every time. And, that, and that's what he did. That's what Philip did. He made straight calculation and said, there's no way. He didn't think about, well, maybe there's a way with Jesus. He didn't think, well, you know, not uh, about a year, year and a few months ago, there was a lack of wine, and Jesus made the best wine ever, abundantly. 
He didn't think about that. They're keenly aware of their need, but they're powerless to meet it. And standing before them was the one who said he created the heaven and the earth, who had all the power. So the first step for them and for us is not to measure our resources, but determine what God's will is and then trust him to meet the need. Their eyes were on their lack of resources, not on Jesus. That's a tremendous application for us. When things seem hopeless, what are you looking at? So Jesus is getting them to see the impossibility of the idea that they'd be able to feed these people. And it tells us he already knows what he's going to do. He knows he's going to do this. He wants them to learn something. Think about that. He wants us to learn something. He's teaching now. He wants them to learn a lesson, but will they learn? He wants us to learn a lesson, but the big question is, will we learn? See, we think we're competent to run our lives. And then we find times where we become powerless, and oftentimes at the same time we're prayerless, and we think we can do it. And maybe things go good for a while. You know, maybe things are going good for you right now, but then struggles come, issues come, problems come, tragedies intervene in your life, marriage problems. Or maybe you say, I wish I was married, and that's a problem. Or problems with children, or you say, I wish I had children, that's a problem. Health problems, financial problems. What happens at some point in your life, and at different times of your life, powerlessness creeps in because we need his power. And he wants to show his power. He's going to show his power. He already knows that. He just wants to get them so, their attention, and get them invested in in the whole situation so that then they will see the power that he has. You know, the Bible talks a lot about power. In Ephesians 1, Paul says, I want you to know the power the incomparable greatness of the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. Paul says, this is available to you. And he uses, this is very interesting. I'm just, this is like another rabbit trail. He says, incomparable greatness of his power. He uses three Greek words that are incredibly expressive, all right? The first one is hyperbolon, or hyperbolon, I should say, hyperbolon is the first one. Hyperbolon literally means, it was used in, 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 in sports, it was meant a man who could take a javelin and throw it further than anyone could imagine. Some, you know, they would have Olympic games back then, right? And so they would have a javelin throwing thing, and they would say, look, this is the world record of javelin throwing, and this some guy gets up and just chucks it and goes, breaks the world record, and they're going, he's not human, He's supernatural. He can throw a javelin further than anyone in the history of the world has thrown. Hyperbolon is is this idea that something happens that is beyond the boundaries of normal. And so in our our Bibles, they translate it incomparable. There's nothing to compare it to. And then there's megathos. Okay, megathos, you kind of start getting mega. You start getting an idea of, of the word, of what, of what megathos means. It, it's, it's this idea of this extreme mega greatness. And then dunamis. Dunamis is the word for power. It's where we get the word dynamite. But dunamis has this idea of a power that's been harnessed that can do an incredible, incredible thing. It's not power that goes crazy. I don't know if you read the other day, they, they caught some guy tra- illegally transporting 32,000 pounds of, of uh, illegal fireworks. And so they put them in the bomb truck, the truck where they detonate bombs in, and they exploded them. And you can see it on TV. It blew the truck up. 17 people were injured. Nobody serious, so we, you know, but 17 people were injured by fragments of the truck. And they were all like, that's more than we imagine, right? More than we imagine. More than we imagine. And it's not, it's not power out of control. It's power that has been harnessed. And so when we say the, the, the hyperbolon, megathos, dunamis, what are we saying? The hyperbolistic, mega gigantic dynamite of God in you, in you, with you, available to you. What is he saying there? He's saying this power 
We have access to it. We are not powerless. Um, one time I did something that I regretted for a long time. I read Fox's Book of Martyrs, and it's just the history of martyrdom in the name of Christ. And it is not a fun book, obviously, right? Not a fun book to read. But I read one time when uh, some people were being killed for their faith, and they sang a hymn before they died. And the Roman um, centurion who was in charge said, they have a power we don't know. We don't know. They have access to a power we don't know. We haven't experienced it. It is, it is parabolon. It is beyond the boundaries of reality. It's megathos. It's gigantic in a way that we can't comprehend. It is power that is something beyond our ability. And so this, they have an access because this is the power. This is the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, he tells. Paul tells us this. This is the power that changes a person from the inside out, right? Really easy to change somebody on the outside. It's really easy to make somebody, I mean, you know, prisons do this all the time. They make people wear a certain clothes. They make people cut their hair a certain way. They make people do things at the same time. What? It's all external power. It doesn't change any one of those people's hearts. Parents, we all know this. We can make our kids, especially when they're little, you can make your kids do things when they're little. But it doesn't change their hearts. That's the power we need, the power that changes hearts from the inside out. Then we have the setting, the problem, and now we have the provision. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place. Mm, that tells us something, right? And they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Okay, let's just step in right now, right? Half the people here are like, meh. All right, this is a paternalistic society. It's a male-oriented society. This is how they did things. There's 5,000 men. There's probably thirteen to 15,000 people there because there's women and children there too. Because one of the other passages mentions there were women and children there too. So I'm not just making that up. All right, good. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. And he did the same with the fish. And when they had all had enough to eat, not a snack, enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are all left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with pieces of five barley loaves, five small ideas, five small barley, almost biscuits, left over by those who had eaten. Twelve baskets. You think that immediately resonates with Jews, right? Twelve tribes of Israel. Twelve, 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 over and over and over. There's a statement here that's being made, and it's powerful. And I, and I want you to note here, Jesus is not showing his power for power's sake. He never does that. We mentioned that. He's a sign. This is a sign. You know, we do that though, right? We want people to see our power. We want people to see our worth. We want people to see our greatness. We want people to think that we're something, that we're somebody. We talk about maybe someone we know that other people go, oh, wow. We get stuff so we get stuff so other people can go, oh, that's really cool. That's a, you're important. You're great. You're cool. Whatever. Does people say we're cool anymore? That's, that's, I'm really out of it. We love to know the things that no one else knows, right? That's why people gossip. That's why people love to have the inside story to spill the tea, right? So, some things I get right, right? Because we love to know the things that no one else We love to be someone that people go, oh, you, wow, you know about, oh, so we feel a little bit important. I tell you sometimes the good things. I tell you sometimes the bad things I do. Not too long ago, Bill and Grace Manning were here. They're, they're living on the Arizona reservation, doing incredible things for the kingdom of God amongst the Navajo people. And they were here, and they had a little fundraiser and different things like that. And somebody who I didn't know very well was kind of talking to me and just said, isn't this amazing what they're doing? I said, it is. It's amazing what God is doing through Bill and Grace. I mean, they, they, they took this. It was nothing before they went there. And I was thinking on the inside, oh, well, um, I, I, I was taking Bill there for 15 years before he went there. I mean, I'm nothing great or anything, but I started it. 
And I really wanted to say that. I got to be honest with you. I really wanted to say that. And then they just, it kept going. And, and uh, so then, it, but it was just, they were like, yes, I mean, to take this, there's no groundwork. There's no, just do it and da, da, da. No. I want to do this. Come on. And, and this is actually a small victory. I did not say anything. As much as it was killing me to say, I started the stinking ministry, okay? Yes, they're doing a great job and things that I never imagined, but I freaking took them there for the first time. They didn't know the Arizona reservation apart from me, you moron. No, I, just, I wasn't thinking that. But. Why? Why? Because I want to be somebody. We all want to be somebody. We all want to be recognized. We all want to feel like we've done some things in our lives that mean something. That means something important. That means something that will last. Why do people put their names on buildings? They want to last. They want to mean something. So we do that. Jesus is not doing that. He wants, he wants to show them there's this power. It's available to you. You know, he's saying, in a sense to us, don't come in here and set your sights too low. Don't come in here. Don't tune in online and say, you know, I need a little bit of encouragement, a little bit of inspiration to get me through the week. Your sights are way too low when you're aiming like that. He's saying, you know what? There's something way bigger than that going on. Because he doesn't say to Andrew and Philip, oh, yeah, no money, not enough food. Watch this. <sighs> you know? He doesn't, he doesn't hey, kid, watch this. He doesn't do that. And there's an overabundance. Remember the water and the wine at Cana? What was Jesus saying? He was saying, I'm the Lord of the feast. I'm the Lord of the feast. There's an overabundance. Even the smallest of things. And here we go, right from the beginning. The smallest of moments in your life. The smallest of times in your life have great potential in Jesus Christ. When the children of Israel were in the wilderness, the manna came, and it was only enough for a day, but it was their source of nourishment. It was their source of life. And Jesus is saying, hey, you guys remember that? Because as soon as there's 12 baskets, they're going, oh, wow, the 12 tribes, he fed us like they were fed in the wilderness. They're making that connection. Every Jew there made that connection. And they were probably all, just about all Jews there, made that connection. And so Jesus is saying, you know what? That manna, it only lasted one day. I got an overabundance of food. I am the bringer of life. I am the life. I'm the provider. And in just 10 or 15 verses, Jesus is going to teach the sermon that goes with this miracle. And he's going to say, I'm the bread of life. Now, we hear that, and it doesn't mean too much to us. But spoiler alert, when they hear it, people leave him. It says many of his disciples left him. This is too hard. This is, you're claiming too much here, pal. This is too hard to say that you're the bread of life because you're making yourself out to be like God. See, they, in a sense, they truly understood what he was teaching. But they weren't willing. They weren't willing. So we have the setting, the problem, the provision. Real quick, just a couple minutes here. I'm going to show you their reaction. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and take him, make him king by force, they withdrew again to a mountain by himself. They said, this must be the one. They look at the Old Testament. They said, here, this is it. This is the Messiah. But it's not, see, here we go. It's the one they wanted. They wanted a king. And Jesus said, I'm the suffering servant. Later, I will come back as the king. But right now, I'm the suffering servant. And they're like, we don't want that. We want the king. We want the ruler. We want the military ruler because we need to take up arms and go kill Romans. See, that's why they want him to be king. Why would those people want him to be king? Oh, wait a minute. Where are they? They're in the center of the zealot movement. So probably most or a huge part of those people there are zealots. 
Now, I mean, just think, I mean, think if I, if I was a zealot, what would I be thinking? Hmm, let's see, we need an army. We need a king to raise an army. This guy has a lot of people following him. That's a good plus. He raises people from the dead. That helps in a battle, right? He heals terrible wounds. That helps in a battle. And he can make enough food appear out of nowhere to feed an army. That helps. You're the man. It's simple. I mean, it just makes sense. So they're going to say, let's make him king. Whether he wants to be king or not, we're going to grab him and we're going to make him king. And Jesus knows what's going on there. And so he withdrew by himself. He moved away from the crowd. They understood because they're right close to Gamla. And they wanted a king who would lead them into battle and free them from the oppression of Rome. They did not understand that Jesus says, look, I'm your king, but I'm going to free you from an oppression that is much greater than the oppression that Rome has put upon you. I'm talking about the oppression of sin and death. I'm going to free you from that. The grip of sin and death that grips all mankind. And that took a greater power than they could imagine. And so they were seeing through the lens of their immediate felt needs. And man, don't we do that. We become overwhelmed by our circumstances and we lose sight of the big picture, that there's a greater picture, that there's a more important picture. And then we don't trust God. We don't believe that he has what's best for us. And so what does this teach us real fast? It teaches us this. It teaches us we need power. The disciples realized they couldn't feed the people. They needed help. They needed something. They didn't know what it was, but they needed something. And Jesus said, I'm the something. I'm the power. Those times I talked about when we feel powerless, we need to be taught. We need to be learners in the midst of those times that the power of God is still available. And this shows us something else. And this is, here we go, the hard teaching. He deserves our all. In verse 11, you know, I, I still, you know, I think about, I joked about Andrew, that little kid. But in verse 11, it says, Jesus, he took the lunch. He's like, thank you. Imagine that kid. That's my lunch, man. That's all I got. And it's not a big lunch. It's not going to make me full. And this man just took it. Now, imagine that kid 10 minutes later. Oh, okay, I'm good. I ate more than my lunch. He, he deserves our all. The boy lost control of his lunch. And he ended up eating more than he had. And thousands of others did too. Because he let go, there was a feast. Now, this is scary and wonderful at the same time. Because God is calling us at times to let go of something. And he's saying, it will be better without it. And we're saying, it's my lunch. Man, it's my lunch. And I like what I have right here more than I think might. Because I... Why? Because I don't trust you. So God is calling us to let go because there will be a feast. And, and, and that is, it is scary and wonderful at the same time. So how do we do this? How do we give our all? I mean, it's kind of simple. We say we obey, but we understand that God has the power and we decide to be obedient in the midst of difficult situations. And then what happens? We begin to change and the question is, are, are, are we changing? That's the question for each one of us to answer. Am I changing? Am I becoming more loving and compassionate towards people? Am I becoming more generous towards people? Am I becoming more merciful towards people? Am I, am I seeking justice more for people? Am I more honest than I was? Am I more forgiving than I was? Am I more trusting than I was? Am I praying more than I was? We understand the power of God is at work, and we begin, we step out. And the question is, are they true of us? Are they true of me? Are they true of you? And I know, I know, you, you, know, you can say, Bob, that's really hard. Y yeah, it is. And the question is, are you willing? Am I, am I willing to trust his power to work this in me and to begin walking this way? And I cannot do it. You can't do it. But what you do do is you start trusting the spirit to work in you and you start stepping out in faith even little steps. Maybe you feel like I'm not being generous, all right? Start little steps of being generous. 
just little steps of being generous. And, and I will hasten to add, be smart with your generosity. Be smart with it. Don't throw money in, in, away. But maybe little steps of being generous. Maybe little steps of deciding, I'm going to be merciful in this situation rather than be upset and angry. I'm going to be forgiving in this situation rather than to hold a grudge and, tr- and start working on it. Because too often, we intellectually believe in God. But the time now, Jesus is saying, is to experientially act it, act it out. We must say, we must obey what we know. Or we will stay spiritually powerless and be in this constant kind of state of feeling, it's not, I'm not doing it right. It's not working for me. I don't know. I'm kind of miserable in this. He says, look, this is what you do. You step out. Maybe it's little things, little acts of generosity. Maybe maybe you go, Bob, I don't like little kids. (laughs) And you serve. And I'm not trying to serve at VBS just giving out food. You can give out food to little kids even if you don't like them. You can do that. Little steps, little steps that then God uses because what? He uses the little things to accomplish great things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. Although, Lord, I have to say, this is hard. It's not fun. But I see the truth in it. I see what you're calling me to do. I see what you're calling all of us to do, to begin to live it out experientially, not just believe it intellectually, to be the hands and the feet of God in people's lives. I thank you right now. There's a group from this church that today is with a whole bunch of Navajos, and they're trying to be the hands and the feet of God in their lives. I pray that you would take all the little things they do and make great things come out of it. We've already seen that happen, Lord, in that ministry. But we pray that it would continue and encourage them. And for each one of us, as we leave this place, wherever we go, for work, for home, for places we go for fun or grocery stores or wherever, help us to do the little things that reflect you better. And in doing that, your spirit works, your spirit empowers us, and things can grow and grow and become bigger and bigger and accomplish great things for your kingdom. We trust you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.